On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me as always, it is... Alan Niven. Good day, sir. Good day, Mitch. How are you doing today? A little cold up there? Yes, a little cold. And and see, adjective-free. It's an adjective-free day today. Just just Alan. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. See? So so kind. But uh, I do want to uh, get to our guests. We have three today, but one is sort of just dropping in for a quick nine or ten-minute chat. But I do have Steve Lukather of Toto and... Jack Blades of Night Ranger. So if you are a AOR fan or a melodic rock fan, I have got you covered on this episode. But or first, a, or, or a fan of a good guitar player. Yeah, you cannot deny uh, Steve's talent. And what's amazing, and, and we'll talk about it more with the Toto thing, but they have been on, or the, the, the different members of Toto, on over 5,000 albums, including... Alice Cooper, Olivia Newton-John, Michael Jackson, obviously the Toto album. Anyway, uh, Kiss albums. We'll get to that, but uh, I am going to... So, yes. so I have to ask, Yes. were they on a Bill Shatner record? I mean, come on, explain to me how we get Bill Shatner on Rock Talk today. Well, well, first of all, you are, you are jumping the gun because I have not told folks yet that we have William Shatner, but we do. From Montreal, uh, the one and only William Shatner. You will, of course, know him as T.J. Hooker or Captain Kirk. And so, yes, the question is valid. Why is William Shatner on Rock Talk? Well, here is the reason. First of all, he has a new album out called Shatner Claws. And we are going into the (laughs) Shatner Claws. Come on, that is awesome. We are going into the Christmas season. And so what uh, what brings you mirth or merriment more than William Shatner doing Christmas songs? But uh, jokes aside, this album includes Henry Rollins, Todd Rundgren, Artemis Pyle, Elliot Easton from The Cars, Rick Wakeman, Ian Anderson, Billy Gibbons, Iggy Pop, and, and because that is not enough, it was all assembled and put together by somebody called Adam Hamilton, which you may or may not remember from L.A. Guns. He is currently touring with L.A. Guns. He has played on many L.A. Guns albums earlier in the year or earlier in their career. And uh, he also, also drummed for Dawkin on an emergency basis when Mick Brown was not feeling well years ago. They had a tour and they were on tour with LA Guns and he said, you know what, instead of canceling these shows, I know these songs, let me play. They did a rehearsal, it worked out and you can go to YouTube and check out Adam Hamilton playing drums for Dawkins. So yeah, you know, with with Henry and Todd and Elliot, Elliot, (laughs) Rick Wakeman and all these others, yeah, that that seems rock talkish to me, right? That's an that's an extraordinary lineup, 
And there I was thinking that you were going to have Bill on because he's a coffee buddy of yours in Montreal. But that's yeah. a very impressive band that he's put around him. Yeah, so, and, and listen, I missed, I, I left out some of the other names. There's also Judy Collins, Danny Bender, uh, Joe Louis Walker, who's a, a blues guitarist, Mel Collins. So there's a lot of people on this album that make it rock talkish. And it is funny because I went to McGill University and there is a building there called... Yes, you guessed it, the William Shatner building. So it is not often that I get to have a guest on the show that I have actually been in. So whew, there you go, right? Um, but here, without well, further... Yeah. Let's go find out what he's got to say. Yeah, so without further ado, this is a quick... I believe it was nine minutes or ten minutes. It was just in and out. The one, the only... William Shatner. We are speaking with William Shatner. The new album is Shatner Claws, featuring contributions by Brad Paisley, Henry Rollins, Todd Rundgren, and many others. Uh, Mr. Shatner, an absolute, absolute pleasure to speak to you this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, as a McGill alumni, I've had a chance to actually be inside William Shatner, so that's the... an added fun part of this today, but that is a fun thing. So you, you graduated McGill. I did. Ago? I did back in the early nineties. Uh huh. So let me talk to you about this, this Christmas album that you worked on with Adam Hamilton, who of course has been in and out of LA guns. Um, talk to me about this concept. Cause you've never done one of these before. Did the record company come to you and say, Hey, we've got a great idea. Or is this something that's been burning in the back of your mind since, the release of your first album back in 1968. The idea of a Christmas album has not been burning. The only thing that has been burning is the brush around Los Angeles. Um, but I had made several albums prior to this. And, uh, for example, there's a, a country music album out uh, at the same time called uh, Why Not Me? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I did with Jeff Cook of Alabama. Uh, and uh, uh, so that album is out there now. And uh, with Adam Hamilton, I did a couple of other albums prior to this. Um, and because of the success of what we were doing, the uh, album, uh, the, the, the record uh, album, uh, company, Cleopatra asked me to do a Christmas album and I said I would do it but I needed you know special circumstances that I wanted and they allowed me to do anything so then I had free reign and um, and with uh, Adam Hamilton uh, put together uh, a number of uh, standard Christmas songs which I then sort of bent a, a little sometimes a little more than a little out of shape to give it my own twist, added uh, a couple of uh, big pieces, uh, an epic poem by a a poet warrior that I know. Uh, I asked him to write me a a Christmas poem, and he wrote about what soldiers are feeling in the field uh, and how's it going back home, and to which uh, we put music. And I think it's an epic uh, Christmas song. And we put music to the Christmas story. Uh, it was the night before Christmas, and uh, that I think is delightful. So what we have is a an album that is b- 
both seriously uh, Christmas and delightfully uh, impish in its uh, attempt to give a new twist on some of the standard Christmas songs. It really is. And, and of course, I, I appreciate some of the people that you have on here. So just quickly, when, when you think Christmas, you know, Iggy Pop and Henry Rollins don't necessarily come to mind. Talk to me about working with them, because Iggy, of course, is this masterful artiste of the last 50 years. Um, how did you get him on the album and, and you know, get into well, the... Uh, a, a number of the musicians that are on the Christmas album uh, joined me in, in a couple of other albums. And uh, I guess the experience uh, and what they uh, heard as a result of... Uh, them putting their talents to work, uh, pleased them enough to want to come back. So we have a coterie of, uh, great musicians, uh, playing, uh, beautifully on, on some of these Christmas songs. Uh, Iggy, for example, uh, I've only met, uh, we laid down our tracks separately. And, uh, then when I heard his track, I worked around that and, uh, and this is the result. Uh, years ago, uh, and I'll get back to the Christmas album in a second. You came to Montreal, and you come a lot for the Just for Last Festival, and you've always put on these galas that have been tremendous. Uh, you did this I Am Canadian rant that folks can go find on, on YouTube and stuff. Uh, talk to me in terms of being a comedian and a comedic actor. Is that something that is something you always wanted to be, or when you started off years ago doing Star Trek and all that stuff, you wanted to be a serious actor and comedy came after? No, uh, none of that uh, transpired. I've been acting, uh, my home city is Montreal, and I've been performing there since I was six years old and all through my grade schools and high schools. And, and then when I went to university at McGill, I I wrote and directed the college musicals and and uh, theater and uh, so I was very very busy uh, in Canada as an actor from a very early age and uh, then went on to Stratford uh, Ontario <clears throat> part of the classical company there for several years so I was an actor uh, and there's no separation between being a, a comic actor and a and a and an actor if you will uh it, it it requires the same truth i suppose a comic actor needs to have a sense of humor about him about both about himself and about the circumstances that the characters find themselves in but there's in my mind no real difference you're telling the truth uh whether it's overstated or understated you're still you're telling the truth you have, of course, done this album or this album with uh, Jeff Cook Jeff from Cook, Alabama. Yeah. Is that something that you would like to pursue further, getting into different genres? I mean, I know years ago Pat Boone did a heavy metal album. Is that something that now that you've done the country one and you've done the Christmas one, do you see yourself taking a foray into other genres well, just for, for fun? I've been asked uh, by the label to, uh, to do a blues album. And I'm now in the process of putting together a blues album. And to me, the blues is sung by people like Aretha Franklin, who must have started when she was two, and this voice emerged from her, uh, which is part of her soul. And, and uh, 
and her being. Uh, that's not my background. Uh, but I understand the blues, and I understand the wail of pain, and how to do that with what I can do musically, which is so limited, but not in terms of feeling and and uh, exposition of that feeling. How to fuse the two is the problem I'm facing now that I'll, I'll try and solve, but uh, I tried to do it with uh, various attacks, uh, uh, various uh, um, kinds of music on the Christmas album, for example. There's uh, rock and roll and, and heavy metal and and even um, uh, Mexican uh, uh, folk music. So it's um, it's a mixed bag. And I'm trying to solve my my problem. Summed up is there is a song on the country music album, uh, which is uh, the title of which is "I Should Have Loved Her," and the guy demonstrating the song to me, uh, who, who laid it down on a track, just wailed. I should have loved and hung a note. Uh, on loved so that the listener could get a sense of how agonizing the singer is about uh, about the word loved. But you can't do that very well with the spoken word. And yet I don't want it to be just the spoken word. I want it to be, in a sense, musical. How do you hang on to a word I should have loved the word loved without being able to extend the note, but trying to convey the same emotion. That was the problem that I had to solve. That you had to solve. And of course, that album has a great song on there called Too Old to Be a Vegan. Absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. I love that title. Yeah. Um, I know yeah. we're running out of time, so I'll just ask you this quickly. 1977, you released William Shatner Live, uh, the idea of a one-man show. Uh, talk to me about that album, because that, that actually still sort of resonates to this day. What was it like sort of putting yourself out there, doing this one-man show, doing this live album, and not having any kind of, uh, you know, movie production behind it or, or TV show behind it? Here you are just sort of naked on the stage uh, doing these bits. I, I uh, About three or four years ago, I did another one-man show and uh, did it on Broadway. It was called Shatner's World, and I got uh, really cool notices and and um, ran for a limited run and then uh, toured it uh, in a great many of the cities in the United States and Australia and New Zealand and Canada. Uh, uh, a one-man show, which is... Well, the the very uh, statement, one man show, it says it all. You're there alone on stage in front of thousands of people, and there no music, no dancing girls, no fire, smoke, and, and thunder, but just you and your words. It's, um, it's an overwhelming uh, thing to do, and beyond the word gratifying, if it's successful, and... Uh, my show was successful based on the reaction of people at the end of the evening. It is a high like no other because 
It isn't other people's words. It isn't uh, the staging, and it isn't the production, and it isn't somebody else who is helping you uh, gain the audience's affection. It's you. And uh, so I did it uh, once again uh, more recently. It's lonely out there. At the same time, if it's working, it's a euphoric. Yeah, I can imagine. And of course, I'll just remind the listeners, Shatner, Claus, and Why Not Me, the country CD, uh, both available now, both out now. And uh, Mr. Shatner, as a uh, Montreal and McGill alumni, it's been a great, great pleasure talking to you today. And uh, pleasure thank you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, you so now. Much. Cheers now. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to William Shatner. And uh, let me just say this. Even had he not been talking about rock or didn't have Iggy Pop on his album, I still would have done it because it's William Shatner for crying out loud. I mean, there's sometimes you just have to go above and beyond, you know, uh, add a little extra content. Uh, anyway, I, I, I had no issue with that. And I think I think you should check out the album. It is a hoot for whatever reason things give you hoots but there you go um are we ready to move on to steve lukather of toto because i have some opinions to ask you about that uh very much um you know just as you know whoever's listening knows i very rarely hear an interview prior to uh, the show being put together but i gotta tell you um I was delighted when you sent me Steve's interview and sat and listened to it because I found it one of the most entertaining and engaging little conversations I've heard in a long time. And I'd never heard his voice before. And he's just got one of those voices that have an inherent honesty in it and an inherent rock and roll attitude in it. And he is just an absolute delight to listen to and I love his attitude and I love his points of view and oh by the way he's a pretty damn good guitar player yeah I mean his his resume of albums he's played on is uh, spectacular and it, it always boggles my mind and we do talk about this when you look at Michael Jackson's Thriller this album that has sold more albums than anybody can count and you go oh by the way you know Essentially, the backing band was Toto. And you go, what? Toto? To what? And it's true. You know, it, it's pretty much Michael Jackson singing for Toto. And that's Thriller. Yes, Eddie Van Halen came in. And yes, other people did this and that, blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, it is Toto being fronted by Michael Jackson, which I've always thought is just this spectacular or, or oddity or whatever word you want to talk about. Anyway, uh, Steve well, came... I, I I, I was going to say, um, back in the day, um, Toto were described as studio musicians. And there was almost a derogatory vein to that description. And I understand it well, because in LA, I worked with a lot of studio musicians. And for me, the challenge with a quote-unquote session musician was to get feel from them. Um, I did a lot of work with a guy called Michael Thompson, who is an amazing guitar player. But to get them to loosen up 
is sometimes really hard work uh, because you know they go in, they do a session, they need to be precise, they need to be quick, they get it done, and they go. Um, so to get somebody to get a little bit loosey goosey and challenge them of with a with a let's see where this goes kind of an approach um, can be really difficult. But Steve, I think embodies that. I think he's one of those people who would come in to play a part, but he'd bring his personality and you get that sense of fear out of him more often than you don't. You really do. And just just quickly, is this is that the same Michael Thompson who did all these albums with uh, Celine Dion, Joe Cocker, Madonna, um, you know, Anita Baker? Is that, is that the one? That, yeah. From... Yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. well, so what Guns N' Roses album is he on? Hmm? He's not. What he's great not. white album is he on? Hmm? Uh, he's not. Okay. Um, we did an album uh, exclusively focusing on him as a player and a really an amazing voice uh, called Moon Calhoun, um, who was actually a drummer originally. And uh, it, it, it did not get the, the respect and the service it should have gotten from their label, which was Geffen at the time. Um, but it, it's kind of nice now to know that, for example, you know, you can go online and you can find it and people say nice things about it. And uh, in Japan, of course, they call it a lost classic. But, you know, go check out an, an, an album called MTB by Michael Thompson. Okay. Um, if, you, if, if you like Toto, you'll like this record. Yeah, and I'll check it out. And, and I've also just punched up his discography. I mean, other than the ones I mentioned, you've got Shania Twain, Michael Bublé, Ray Charles, Meatloaf, Phil Collins. I mean, this is not some slouch just playing with some bar pickup band. I mean, this is, you don't work with those people unless you're at the top of your game. I mean, that's fair and easy to say. Oh, and he, his guitar was entirely unplayable. The fretboard was chronically scalloped. Um, which made it really, really tough for your hands. And the string gauge that he used to use, I used to laugh that, you know, dude, I'm going to go out to the desert and I'm going to see where there are telegraph poles that are missing their wires because he played with such a heavy gauge. Um, I'll tell you, if, if, if you ever had a jar, you couldn't get the lid off, Michael would be the one to open it for you. Wow. Now, uh, the, what was the name of the band again? Moon Calhoun. Well, Moon Calhoun was the vocalist, and oh, sorry, the, um, yeah, 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 and the uh, and the album we MTB. Just it MTB. Okay, and because I've looked that up just now, and it does include Toto singer Bobby Kimball, uh, ex Kansas yep. singer John Elefante, and also Terry Bozio and Pat Torpy, uh, who of course passed away not too long ago, who was in Mr. Big. So, sounds like a pretty uh, star lineup right there. It would. It was an interesting, interesting group of people to have come in and play, and uh, I think it's fair to say they found it interesting working with me because I am not a devout precisionist. Um, for me, the perfection in recording lies in knowing which imperfections, thus humanities, to keep. Yep. So it was an interesting session, but I think we came out with a decent disc. But you know, go check it out. You tell me. That's right. And it was it was can't miss. It was a can't miss disc. See. Yes. 
because <laughs> that was the single. But um, real quick, uh, The Gospel According to Luke is his book, and you will see if you um, enjoy the interview and the way he approaches it and the way he speaks, the the book is very much in the same uh, tone, in the same vein. It's, I don't want to say it's in your face because that almost sounds aggressive, but it's just bare and raw and honest. And what I like about the book, especially, is that he will say, this person did this, 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 and said that, blah, blah, blah. And then you finish reading the story, and then there's a paragraph from that person answering back, either saying, not too sure his memory is exactly where it should be, or yeah, that's that's exactly what happened, and and I just find that interesting that you get his voice, but you don't get just a one-sided story. You get the other voices that add a texture to it. And quite frankly, I would recommend anybody uh, in the rock world who's putting out a biography or an autobiography to use that method, for the lack of a better word, just because it makes it interesting. And as you read it, you don't go, ah, oh, BS, BS, BS. Man, how, what do you, you go, oh, okay, okay. Because there's a, there's a lot of his, his sisters and his family members respond back to stuff. And it's like, ah, anyway, just to me, it paints a, a, a bigger picture or a clearer picture of, of what was going on. Anyway, we, we go by the book, The Gospel According to Luke. And uh, yeah, so there you go. We talk- it. And if you ever run across him in a bar, I would say that Steve is exactly the kind of person that if he says, do you fancy a tequila, you say yes. I can imagine. And um, uh, what was the I going to say? The conversation would be hilarious. Oh, it would, uh, he, he is he is exceptionally funny. So I'll, I'll give you two quick things on this. Uh, we talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll do hit and miss. Does Toto belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yes or no? Um. Uh, the yes. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we've talked about this before, to me is an idiotic construct. So um, they can be in it, they can be out of it. To me, it's just right. an idiotic construct. You know, I'm not going to disagree with that. And, um, well, you know what? We, oh, and the other thing is, uh, you, you did talk about... Uh, Making an album is about keeping the perfect imperfections or, 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 you know, learning which imperfections to keep. Have we gotten too far with the technology, with the Pro Tools and stuff? Have we lost the ability to have pure musicianship? Are we too robotic in our approach to music these days? Or is it an enhancement? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I think. I'd, I think that um, the problem with Pro Tools is that it makes those who are of diminished talent or plain mediocrity um, appear to be more than they are initially sonically. Uh, But as a platform, um, I always, you know, and I have to use Pro Tools sometimes. My attitude is we're going to use this with an analog consciousness. and we could go into a, another time. We'll go into a talk talk about that. But Pro Tools, I think, is is a real pain in the ass. And I think we have an awful lot of stuff out there that, you know, you want to go see these people and see if they can do it without a backing tape. I very much doubt it. Um, a band takes time to find its personality and its character. It takes time to form its skill within the chemistry of that character 
And you can't just press a button and generate personality. No, you can't. And uh, there are so many more sort of rock talk topics just within that. And uh, we will get to them because there's a lot of stuff to to go through. But uh, let us get over to Steve um, Lukather, The Gospel According to Luke. Great book. I mean, I have read a lot of these autobiographies and I've loved many of them for different reasons. The Kiss ones just because they're Kiss and so on and so forth. But this is a book. I mean, this is a real book. This this is a compelling story. Uh, so here is to talk about his book and other things, the one, the only, Steve Lukather. We are speaking with Steve Lukather. The new book is The Gospel According to Luke. Steve, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you this morning. You too, pal. Yes. This so, is cool. Yeah, so let, let's get into to the book and all these details. Now, the the, the amazing thing is is that I was going through the book over the last couple of weeks and I was reading it and it's it's just an incredible tale and I was thinking well I got to ask him about okay. this and I got to ask him about that and if you look at the book right now I have got so many yellow little posties everywhere that it's going to take us <laughs> it's going to take us about 18 hours to go through this but but let me start yeah, come here on, man. Let's try yeah let's try so let, let's start at the beginning you are very very upfront Uh, in the beginning and saying, listen, if you're looking for a book that's going to be negative, slanderous, attacking, you're in the wrong place. Um, Talk to me about that approach and saying, listen, I'm going to tell you the story, but I'm going to do it without being vindictive and vicious. Well, I mean, in in truth, a couple people get a little little slap, but I mean, it's only because it's relevant to the story and, and it affected me in a negative way. I, I didn't personally go after people to settle scores and get even with people. It was more like, this is why that happened. And this is my, I hurt my feelings or, or I really felt this was out of line. And this is what happens in the music business, blah, blah, blah. But I, I didn't write a, you know, I didn't keep a list of people I want to, you know, get even with to write a book about. That's not the point of the book. Right, and that and that's what keeps it refreshing. Now, uh, and I'll get to this straight off the top, and then we can get to, to more exciting things. Yeah. But, but the one person that that got a little bit of shade, if, for the you know, for the lack of a better word, yeah, was Jan Wenner over at Rolling Stone, and of course, oh, well, you know, dude, they just got me again the other day, and you know why? Because I refused to talk to them again. So they sent out this fucking wanker just to purposely go after us again like it was like 1978 you know these guys have been after us from day one and i know why and and, and you know here's the thing we came out exactly the same time the sex pistols came out you know and we were like you know young guys that studied music and our heroes are the beatles and steely dan and stuff like that and all of a sudden that became incredibly out of vogue overnight you know we spent our whole lives trying to be great growing up you know, from the Beatles forward and all the great musicians and musicianship of the era and then the studio musician thing happened. And then all of a sudden they picked us out of the pile of all the bands of that era, probably because we had the most, you know, we had the shitty name, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I was like, when we said, when the guys wanted to call a band, I'm like, really guys? But I've grown to, I've grown to love it. It's been very good to me. But at the time we were the band to pick on. We didn't have a cute lead singer. We didn't dress right. You know, we didn't, play the game we we studied music we didn't study how to have an image you know and we thought that was good enough and uh you know in the 70s it was but once everybody had to be pretty it got weird and these guys the tragically hip the failed musicians 
they can't get a gig, you know. Well, you can't, you know, so you can't, they're not good enough to make it as a player, so they take up writing about what they can't do. And they hate people that can do it well. Look at, it's, you know, through history, you look at who they like and who they don't like, you don't even have to ask the question. You go, yeah, of course, you know. You know, I don't think Lou Reed uh, is the greatest guitar player in the world, but he's in the top ten at Rolling Stone. He's a great songwriter, great, you know, lyricist, no argument there. But best guitar player? Come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's just it's just it's a real tragically hip magazine that's now a, you know a pamphlet to line your cap box with. You know what can I tell you? I don't give a fuck about Jan Winter. I gave him a shot because he deserved it. Him, yeah. and it's not just him. Firstly, it's him and his minions. You know, the David Freakies who think they're so fucking cool and hip. Fuck you, man. <laughs> Skinny little bastard. I bash his fucking head in. See, I'm sport. But see, then I go to jail and ever then he sues me and then he's just a cunt. And that, leave that in. I can leave that in. We'll, we'll leave that in. But let, let's talk about that because you you do talk about musicianship in the book. Well, these, the other thing is these guys would never say this shit to my face. They're cowards. Fucking cowards. Come say this shit to my face and see what happens. And and I will add to this just real quick is that they are cowards. And also when their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame doesn't have a marquee uh, band, all of a sudden... Oh, look at that. We can induct Kiss. Oh, look at that. We can induct Bon Jovi. So they, they spent years bad-mouthing them, not putting them on the cover, ignoring them. And then when, mm-hmm. they, need, when they need them to sell their product, oh, well, Bon Jovi's very cool. Well, of course. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, you know, we turned down the cover of Rolling Stone in 1982 when Total Four was huge. And we had a number one record in the Grammys and all that stuff. Because they hate us. I mean, would you would you would you put your ball sack into a wood chipper? Of course, we turn this down. No, we're not going to do that. You know, it's like no. And then all these years later, the resurgence of all this stuff. All of a sudden, they want to make nice. You know, they even bash me when I'm playing Ringo. You know what I mean? It's like really, dude. You know, like after 43 years, you're going to keep up this bully sort of vendetta against people you've never even met. Yet you probably have albums with our names on it. And you don't even realize it. You know. Yeah, and they've, they've probably accepted gold records in, in their name. Well, you know, they, they, they would put us down for being studio musicians. Like, those fucking guys even know what that is? You know, we didn't sit there and read dots on a paper all day. They wrote G, A minor, B minor, and then hand us a chart and count off the song. You better play something. Not a lot of cats can do that. I agree with that. Now, but I, I do want to get to the part here in the book. You you talk about, well, you know, folks now, we should just tool it. We should just tool it, meaning pro tool. Yeah, man. Well, what, what's the clue? Well, Dean Parks, a famous studio musician, came up with a great one. He goes, before pro tools, there were pros. Right. So so talk to me about that at moving forward, though. Are we starting to lose sort of the allure of being a musician and, and the ability? Because, you know, you look back at the day with Al. What do you mean, starting? <laughs> <laughs> right. Dude, anybody with a garage band and a computer, auto-tune, auto-time correction, I mean, it's like it's like marrying a beautiful girl that's had plastic surgery and she gets pregnant as a kid. You don't know what's going to come out, you know? Um, it's, I, you know, people don't understand this. I, I don't get it. It's too easy. You know, every kid on every family on every block all over the world. Oh, my son's in a band. He just made a record. Really? Did you really make a record? Or did you just make it look like you made a record? Some people aren't ready. There has to be some sort of A&R. Like, you're not ready, kid. There's something there. You know, you got to try and fail. Not everybody makes the fucking uh, the baseball team. But now everybody gets a trophy. And now we've you know raised a generation of kids that can't find their ass with their left hand, you know? 
Yeah, and and it's 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 a shame that we're losing that because there was there were certain a mystique of unwrapping an album and looking at the the cover art and knowing that the people on there had invested their lives and 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 rehearsed yeah. and yeah we've we've moved through, but they changed the game in the middle of, they changed the rules in the middle of the game you know what i mean you know being a good musician wasn't good enough then he had if you you know if if, you, if that doesn't matter then it's like you know the tragically hip you know what i mean what how i looked at you know what do you look like they judge your music by how you look that's what's weird to me but i'm old school i grew up seeing the beatles on the ed sullivan show and i followed you know that path you know in real time in real time so, so there was no classic there was no classic rock it was just rock and roll before it had like 5000 subgenres you know yeah so so let me get into to the to to that the the, the early beginnings cuz you talk about it in the book and uh one thing that i find interesting in the book that i haven't seen in in other books is that you give a voice to certain people. You have the gospel according to David. You have Laura in there. You have Trev. You have other people that get to not necessarily respond to what you're saying, but certainly add color to what you're saying. Um, Talk to me about that sort of concept of having the actual people you're talking about and mentioning getting a voice within the book and say, hey, okay, Steve's saying this, but this is how I saw it. This is how I felt it. This is how I lived it. Yeah, well, I mean, these guys are, are very, very close friends of mine, you know, for 43 years or more. And some are my family, as you mentioned, you know. I thought it'd be interesting to get their point of view. So when I was working with Paul, you know, we worked over the course of, excuse me, over the course of two years. He he helped me compile and put things in some sort of chronological order. And we had to cut out 400 pages of stuff because, I mean, not only do I talk too much, I've done an awful lot, and I guess they had they went picked and choose what they thought was relevant for the book or what they thought would be a good, great story as opposed to a million other stories I have. And then some of the people involved, said, why don't you call Cooch? Why don't you call Sklar? I talked to my kids, you know, you know, and some of the stuff hit the hit hit, you know, hit the editing floor. But what can I say? I mean, I, I thought it would add a nice little color to it, you know. And plus, I ended up rewriting the whole book because the first draft I got, I sound like a proper Englishman because Paul's from the UK. You know, I said, no, nah, man, it's got to be raw. It's got to be me, and it's got to be funnier. So I went in there and re- and went through every every sentence and, and made it more me so it's my voice. And I did the audio book, too, so I read it myself, added a few things and laughed at my own stupid jokes. People seem to like that. It's a... Uh, We'll see what happens. It's up for. I made the pre-Grammy cut. That'd be funny if I actually got nominated for best spoken word. <laughs> that actually would be great. For some reason. Okay, so <laughs> you know, because there's so much content here, I'm just going to sort of jump around Go ahead, uh, man. I randomly. You, you got to stop me. No, no, no. I'm going to jump around randomly here, but uh, you you do talk about. You just mentioned that that you had an extra 400 pages and so on and so forth. You've had this amazing career of over 40 years. All these albums, all this stuff. Um, you were reticent to write the book for at the that you say that in the beginning that yeah. my, my story. I had to write the disclaimer, you know. Right. Do is that? Do you see yourself now that you've done it and you're getting such a good, warm reception that we'll do a second book, or we might do a series of smaller books, or start running a blog or something and just start getting out some of these stories because there are so well, many. Well, you know, there's all yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Actually, BBC and Sony want to do a documentary. So that's kind of interesting, you know. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And there was talk about maybe doing a book on just all the sessions. And you know, this was a, it was number one rock bio 
and uh, number one audio book, and it was getting five star reviews and stuff. So I guess there's a little interest in what's going on. It's selling. I have people seem to like it. It seems to have resonated in some way. So I'm kind of like, oh my god, everybody knows way too much about my life now. You know what I mean? Because I was really pretty candid. You know, I was kind. I threw myself under the bus if I threw anybody under the bus because. It's a very weird life, as you've been around it long enough to know what it is. I've been through all of it, the good, bad, and the ugly. Well, so you I really, wanted to be truthful about that. You really have. Um, all right, I'm going to go over here. Like I said, I'm just going to jump sort of randomly in and out of topics. Yeah, that's cool. um, June 5th, 2008, you put out a press release, and you say, Toto is done. And you said, yeah. I can't go out and play hold the line with a straight face anymore. I was 19 when we cut it. I'm 50 now. Obviously, that sentiment has come and gone because you're our yeah, well, in total now. Explain it. Yeah. Let me, let me explain it. First off, at the time, you know, I was beating myself up real bad. You know, I mean, I was going through a tough time. My marriage was failing. My mother died. I was drinking way too much because I was miserable. I had a great group of musicians on the stage and a singer that wasn't really cutting it. And uh, you know, we were having a tough time. It was a tough time in our career. I mean, I was seeing it falling apart and I was falling apart and I needed to get away from it. I was getting sucked into like just being negative, sarcastic and bitter. And I just didn't ever want to be that guy when I've been given this wonderful gift and opportunity. And I needed to pull out and uh, get myself together and kind of figure out what I was going to do. I was being very unhealthy, and I saw my playing sucked. I was, I was, I was a negative person, and maybe sometimes I thought I was funny because I was drunk, and I wasn't funny at all. I was an asshole, and I feel terrible about that. So I had to – it was either do that or, or just lose everything, you know? So I said – I decided, well, that's it. And I just stopped drinking, smoking, cleared my brain out, went to a shrink for a while. And then I started doing stuff on my own and working on my own projects and, you know, touring with other people, touring with solo stuff. And then, you know, Mike Picaro got, you know, his ALS was getting very bad, you know, and he needed money. So Page, David Page called me on the phone and said, we got to do something. I said, well, I'll do it if Joseph Williams, our singer, comes back and Steve Picaro comes back. And let's do a tour and we'll give the money to Mike and throw a few bucks in our own pockets for the effort. And uh, that's what we did. And that was 2010. So it was two years after the fact. And it was so successful and so, so much fun. I looked around the stage and go, oh, they're my high school buddies, you know? And uh, we were doing it for the right reason. It was, and it was a lot of fun. It was like a new band. And there was a new energy and, and uh, a fire to it. And, and, you know, the crowds were showing up in droves and we were selling out big places, headlining festivals in Europe. And there seemed to be some joy back in it. And I could look around and see my high school friends. Uh, and that's, and we said, well, that was so much fun. You want to do it next year? And that sort of snowballed into a thing. And then we want to do a live, uh, anniversary DVD. And then we found out our first managers without telling us, hooked us up into, if we did anything, we owed this Italian company, a, a studio album. And then that started a whole thing. We said, well, we could either sue them or we can make this record. And if we're going to make a record, let's not just phone it in. Let's actually try to make a good record for the people that like our music. I hate to use the word fan because I'm a little old to have fans. I'm friends and followers and people like the music, whatever, whatever you want to call that. But, uh, and it was just, and it just started to get more and more fun and more successful. And then this Africa thing started to take off again, which is insane. I mean, nobody's laughing harder than us, but also reaping the rewards of it. So it's just been from a business standpoint, it went through the roof. The stock went through the roof. So I took, you know, we went through a couple of, um, 
sad management tries that didn't work. And then I ended up taking over the thing the last four years and working with some wonderful people that help me. I don't do it all by myself. Believe me. It's a great staff of people that look after everything and everything's moving. You know, if you take away multi-platinum sales, which don't really exist for anybody anymore, rare anyway, uh, you know, we're, we're more successful than we've ever been in our entire career right now today. So I have to say that it's been quite a wild ride and I hung on for dear life, believing that there would, we could pull this off, particularly in the United States. Yeah. Everywhere else we were cool. You know, we could play in Europe and Japan and elsewhere and make a living to keep feeding our families. But that wasn't enough for me. I really believed in what we were trying to do from the beginning. And I'm the only guy that's been there from the first rehearsal to today and never missed anything. I took a few years off. Yes. I called time of death on that incarnation of the band because it, it just wasn't functioning properly. People were unhappy. And I said, I'm not, I'm just not enjoying this anymore. And Dave, when I did pull the plug, Paige called me on the phone and goes, I have, what took you so long? So that was the big running joke. Now, nothing against the other musicians. They're all famous, beautiful cast, dear friends of mine. It just wasn't Toto anymore. It just wasn't Toto. And, and of course... It was the greatest cover band I've ever been in. <laughs> and of course, Toto 14 was a great album. I had a chance to interview Joseph Williams at the time for it back in what? I oh, cool. 2015. It, fantastic record. But okay, so let me let me connect these two between the book and the albums. Sure. In the book, you say you've got a collective of a band that has played on over 5,000 albums, 225 Grammy nominations, and yet you look back at 40 some years of Toto. And there's just a little bit over a dozen albums. Why has the band not focused on producing more Toto music? We have 17 albums, 17 studio albums, man. Right. Uh, but uh, we were, Well, first off, you have to tour in between these things. And that usually takes a year and a half. And then you take a break and have to write an album, record it. That takes a while. So, I mean, it's album tour, album tour. I mean, as you have a family and all that sort of stuff, you want to kind of hang around a little bit. But there's no particular. We just didn't want to just rush stuff out. Um, we worked at the pace that we wanted to work at, and that's really the only excuse I have. You know, it, it, it's certainly panning out now. So let me look at uh, some of these moments because we we talk about how your career took off and so on. You put a lot of it on this solo that you did in the song "A Clue" on down to the left. Well, generally, yeah, generally the whole thing for me was Boss Gags was the right. a huge catalyst to to myself personally. And also to the band, he sort of helped, you know, because of the success of Silk Degrees, which David Page wrote all the songs with Boz and Jeff played drums on. It was like all of a sudden, five million records later, we come out of high school. I'm 19 years old on the road with Boz, living the dream, so to speak. And it was just a wide eyed kid going, I get to see the world for the first time. And it was, you know, we were so young, we couldn't even go to the bar and have a beer after the gig. You know, I'd be like, Oh, that girl's really cute. And Craig Frew and the tour manager goes, dude, you can't date. You can't look at her. She's 16 years old. I go, I'm 19. Who am I supposed to date? You know, so it was kind of funny. It was a run. You know, I was so, it was just, I was so green and innocent, man. It was really, I look back at it and I smile at my younger self and go, wow, man. But I, everything was happening so quickly. My, you know, Boz having a, a couple solos on that record down to the left. Um, really shot, you know, was, a, was a, opened a lot of doors for me. And I was just starting to work in the LA studio thing. And all my friends were helping me out to the, obviously Jeff McCarl and the McCarl brothers and Jay Grade and Lee Rittenauer and all these wonderful guys that took a shine to the kid and would throw me extra work they had. And I started to build, uh, my own reputation in town. I started getting a lot of calls to play on hit records and boom, Toto took off. And then 
it was almost like within a period of like a year and a half, I went from nowhere to like, who is this kid? You know? And I was everywhere. Yeah, literally. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention the, the discography in a second here, but on that, uh, down to the left album, you, you've got Jim Haas who, who sang on it. And he also did the theme song for happy days, which your family yeah, worked on. Your, right. You know, he, my father was the assistant director on that TV show. Yes, of course. Cause it's in, it's in the book. So I want to ask you about <laughs> I don't that. I hope you read every line. <laughs> I mean, hey, I do. I do my research. Um, so, but, <laughs> but, talk, but talk to me about that. Cause your, your, your dad and, and others were, were working in the business. What sort of did you did lessons did you get from that? Did, did you get sort of a sense of how to be a professional, how to be business? I mean, or were you just a sort of a kid hanging out? What what did he bring? Well, to when the I table? was a little kid, I remember going down. My dad was doing well. Actually, when I was born, my dad was doing Ozzy and Harriet. But then I remember when I was a little kid, he was doing I Dream of Genie, and I went down to the set and I actually got to meet Genie, which was pretty cool because yep. she was black and white on my TV, and there she was, stunning woman, stunning. Yep. Oh, yeah. And I was just a little kid, so it wasn't a sexual thing. It was more like, wow, this is a beautiful, I don't know why, this is a beautiful woman dressed in the genie outfit. <laughs> and, but what I, what I got out of it, I was like, this is like watching paint dry. This is not like, people think that the TV shows are shot in chronological order and everything is just like a book. It's not. They shoot out of order. It takes, you know, five hours to light two scenes and then shoot it twice and you wait around for another five hours while they set up again. What I learned from my father was business, organization, and work ethic being on time. My dad was a Marine when he was 16. So being on time and you know, for his work and his whole life was very important. And it's, it really helped me in my life because I'm, you know, tragically punctual. <laughs> you know, I always have been unless really horrible happens, but, uh, you know, it means something. I, I respect other people's time. My father taught me about budgets and he goes, he goes, when we, when our first tours and first album started, he goes, Hey, watch out for that money. These assholes, and they pad the bills and they keep the money. They're all criminals. Don't believe anybody that smiles at you and stuff, you know? And uh, so I got my business eth- work ethic from my father. Right. And that's, and that's a good work ethic to have. So, so let me move on here to, and again, I'm, I'm going random sort of all over the place, but at the back of the, <clears throat> yeah, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. You have got literally about 20 pages of albums that you've played on. And at the top of it, it says partial <laughs> discography yeah well i mean you know that's what they you know i did a lot of I, I did a lot of stuff on the radar there's stuff that they didn't put in there they just that they forgot or got missed or so i mean i don't sit around and count this stuff up other people do i mean i understand i stopped doing quote-unquote sessions about 25 years ago I, I would say from like 1976 to 1993 was where i did most of my studio work and after that i started getting into doing my own stuff when toto wasn't working producing records writing songs for other people because the window of being uh you know the uh, first call studio musician was about 10 12 years or something like that after that you get burned out or another guy comes along and they want to use the new guy so you got to move on and become a producer an artist or something you know you could unless you want to just do television and film and and that takes a different skill set because that's just all reading the notes for us, it was like they'd give us a, a broad stroke sketch with some chord changes on it and roll the tape, and we had to come up with our own parts on the spot immediately. And that's what we got good at. I got good at it, and they'd, I'd come up with a little hooky parts for the arrangement, and uh, that's why we got hired all the time, or I could do a solo in one or two takes, because back then, you know, they didn't have a thousand tracks like they do on Pro Tools. Like, we got one track for a solo. You better be good. 
If you don't like it, you got to erase it. Many times I did sessions that I did a great first take, and they just didn't want to keep it because I did it so fast. And then we'd erase the best solo, and they, you know, what came out was fine. But you know, the most inspired stuff is usually before you know everything really well, and you're playing from the gut, not the brain. And there's little imperfections about the old records that were great, man, because we sat in a room and we played together, and things would happen by accident. And uh, that you can't get that doing one guy at a time on a Pro Tools rig. You can't. It's, just, it's a different way of doing things, you know. And, and I've always said that those imperfections are what add charm to an album. You listen to early Black Sabbath, you listen to early Kiss, you listen to early pretty much anybody, and there's mistakes everywhere. The the, the tempos. Yeah, are but, off but, the, but there. You know, but that's, what's a mistake? What's a mistake? I mean, human beings are not perfect. You know, that's what's wrong with you know, putting everything on a grid and tuning it and making sure it's every note's perfectly played in time. Uh, it's not real. I mean, there's, I love the old Motown records, a little out-of-tune horn or a tambourine that's rushing or something like that. I mean, a little vocal imperfection. It's got soul, man. We're not perfect. Look in the mirror, man. I, I, I try to avoid mirrors at this point, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's an unrealistic view. And then you go see somebody live and it's not that. And people go, oh, it sucks. They go, yeah, because it ain't real. It, 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 Nobody's yeah. that. Are you that? Or, yeah, or if it sounds like that, it's because they're just faking it to the record. Yeah, we, we've lost the soul, I think, to, to a lot of our music. Um, let, let me just stay on this, this line of session work because Toto yeah. explodes. You know, the first album comes out. You got to hold the line. You're doing great. And of course, we get over to four and, and albums are. And you're still doing the session work. Uh, talk to me about sort of that, and I'll, I'll call it a business decision to to make yourself available to keep doing that, and not just sort of say, "Hey, I'm in Toto now. We've got these great songs. Don't call me anymore." Why was that sort of important to keep doing those sessions, and not just in your genre? You did everybody and everything, yeah, including. Yeah, no, I mean, that would thing is, I wanted to be a sitting musician in high school, but I also wanted to be in my own rock band. You know, so, I mean, there's, I saw Jeff Picaro doing this, and, like, Jeff was, like, a big, huge catalyst to getting me in on all this stuff, you know, the whole Picaro family. But Jeff was at number one. He was in Steely Dan when we were in high school, so we knew how good we had to be. So, I mean, here's the first thing. You know, I mean, you do the records and all that stuff, and you just assume. I'm not busy every day. Somebody calls me on the phone and goes, you want to come down and play music with Joni Mitchell or, or somebody, you know, Joe Cocker or something like that? It's like, yeah, I'm in, and I get paid, too. Woo, I'm there. You know, and that just started to happen when I'm sitting around the house. I'm a musician. I want to play. If I can play and get paid, even better. I get to work with legendary heroes of my my God, who wouldn't want to do that? So there's I, I manage my time. Sometimes I look at this and I you know, I don't look at my when I saw the discography the first time in my book, I laughed. And Steve Picaro, you know, our keyboard player, he goes, Man, he goes, I love the book. He goes, The back scared me. He goes, I I forgot how much stuff you guys did, you know. That you did. And I said, yeah, man, it was busy time. I love to work. I love to play. That's why I did it. And people called me and I wanted to deliver. I found it a challenge and all these different kinds. Of, you know, I could do Aretha Franklin during the day and Alice Cooper at night. That was not weird to me. I love all kinds of music. I'm not a musical snob. Yeah. Well, and I, and I I do want to talk about the Alice Cooper real quick from the inside. Uh, how you're going to see me now. Yeah. One of his greatest uh, power oh, ballads. Thanks, and and you're all over that. That's that's you. Yeah, that's, I pl- I played the guitar. I wrote two songs on that album with Bernie Taupin, yep. Foster, David Foster, and uh, Alice. And it was so great. I was only 20 years old, I think, at the time. 
Yeah, and that's how you... Uh, it was really a thrill for me. And through David Foster, you met Lisa Del Bello, who, of course, is a great Canadian artist up here. Um, oh, I love Lee. Lee is, is still a dear friend. I don't get to see her much, but she was Jeff's girlfriend when we met. I, it was one of the first records I was playing on, you know. In the early days, Foster was a great help to me, man. He was. He, I learned a lot. I, I, I looked up to him. He's a brilliant musician. And uh, that sadly, that relationship faded. But, uh, you know, I don't want to dwell on the negative in that area because he really did help me a lot when I was young. He just sort of uh, forgot about us all. And that's the nicest way I can put it. Forgot about us all when our success happened. I, I always thought it was like one for all, all for one. One guy, one of the group of us has a hit. We all did. You know, it's like, yeah, great for the team, man. And yeah. apparently he didn't feel that way at some point, and that sort of severed our relationship, sadly. I'm not happy about this, because, you know, right. there was a time when I just really looked up to the cat, and it really hurt me really badly when he turned on us. But unfortunately, the, the, the music business, even as a journalist, it's all about competition. And when you get a little bit ahead... People are yeah. gunning for you. But anyway. It's, you know, it, it's, you're being nice. it's a ruthless, cutthroat, stab-in-the-back business. It's all about cash and getting one up on somebody, you know? I just wasn't raised that way. Yeah. No, I'm still was. friends with my high school friends, you know what I mean? I don't have to, like, worry about going to my, uh, you know, 100th <laughs> high school reunion because I don't need to go because I'm still friends with the people that I'd want to see and most of the uh, most of the other people I don't really know. And I... So I'm, I haven't turned into some weird Hollywood asshole, you know. Well, so again, let me let me get back to to the session work. You ended up playing on Michael Jackson's Thriller, yeah. one of the most successful, if not the most successful, album of all time. Um, talk to me about a little bit about those sessions. Eddie Van Halen was there too. He, of course, played on your first album. <laughs> Well, Ed and I go, you know, Ed and Alex and, and me go back 43 years or something like that. I mean, I we're still very close friends. I adore those guys, you know. Oh, good. Have them call me. <laughs> and I, I always liked all of them. Mike Anthony's a great cat. I mean, you know, I, mean, I know I, I'm Switzerland. I, I'm friends sometimes in, in, as we, these long careers happen, band splints and factions of a band. I'm like, you know, I love everybody, man. It's not my fight. I got my own band to piss and moan about. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I, but Ed, getting back to Ed, I mean, that whole story is weird because we were never in the studio at the same time on the on the beat on the beat it thing. I sort of had to fix it. Me and Jeff had to fix it to make it work. Um, keeping Michael's lead vocal and Eddie's solo and um, some other small bits and pieces that were on, uh, you know, that were on the master track. Because I mean, back then you didn't want to go second generation with that kind of stuff, which would be bouncing and using slave tapes, which is all tech talk for the uh, average person. So we had to figure out a way to keep all that stuff. And I played all the other guitar parts and bass. And Jeff played drums. Eddie did the solo. Michael did the vocal. And that's the record. But, you know, again, you know, we never get any love for this stuff. <laughs> we go in there. I, I was working with Quincy on the Dude album. That's how I, that was the first time I worked with him. And, uh, you know, the first thing we did with Michael was the Paul McCartney duet, which is a big thrill. First Beatle I ever got to play with. And that's the reason why uh, I breathe. And then Paul hired Jeff and me to come work with him again. It just kind of snowballed. But, you know, working, with Thrill working on Thriller with Michael and Quincy was a gas, man. Human Nature is like a Toto song. Steve Picaro wrote it. We all played on it. Michael sang it. 
the duet with, with uh, Paul and then Beat It were the were the big ones that, uh, that we all had something to do with. And hopefully, hopefully you can start incorporating them in a Toto set. But uh, like so we mentioned, we the did. Beatles. We play Human Nature Live. We we do it. We do like That's an right. acoustic version. With Steve. That's right. Yeah, I mean Steve's song. I mean he has every right to do it. And we joke around sometimes. We start jamming on the riff to Beat It, and people laugh. It's like that's pretty funny. I mean, I still laugh. I remember going into the studio when he played me the song Beat It. He, and Quincy goes, you got to help me fix this. And he planned to hear the lyric. He's opening lines, your butt is mine. And songs called Beat It. I'm on the floor howling, laughing. I'm going, are you serious, man? You can't be serious. And, you know, here you go. Biggest record of all time. So <laughs> I was never one to pick the singles, you know. But it, it turned out well. Um, uh, where am I going to go here? Oh, yes, I know where I'm going to go. Uh, the Beatles, of course. Uh, you do talk yeah. about that moment, that epiphany, that awakening, when you see them on Ed Sullivan, you are, of course, going on tour with Ringo Starr and have in the past. You, you've, you've been on stage with George Harrison. You've had Paul McCartney. Uh, talk to me about that, that moment. It is vividly described in the book, but, but just... Well, I mean, you know, working with, whenever I'm in the room with, you know, one of those guys, and the other is the on switch to my life. You know, I I can't describe the euphoria, really. I mean, it, it just it was like a it could pinch me. Like, am I really doing this? You know, when I did the Beatles' fiftieth anniversary TV show, you know, a few years back in fourteen, it was their fiftieth anniversary. The you know, seeing the Beatles, I saw the Beatles that night when I was a little kid, and I pointed at George, I want to be that guy. Something resonated inside of me that guitar sound, and it changed my life, literally, and. All of a sudden, 50 years later, I'm standing there looking at Paul and Ringo. I'm looking at Hard Day's Night clips going, I made my grandmother take me to see this movie a hundred times. Uh, and then I'm standing here. I mean, what are the odds if you were a guy in Vegas? What are the odds of the kids from North Hollywood pulling off that lofty dream? And countless zeros at the end of it. So, I mean, you know, it, I... I it kind of hit me. I went, wow, this is a humbling moment. This is amazing that I actually pulled this off. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 I guess the, what I'm trying to say is if you really want something bad enough, you got to really work hard and believe in it. And maybe it'll happen. You know, it could happen to anybody about anything. I just wouldn't take no for an answer. And then when I found myself in the middle of it, it was rather shocking, you know, but I didn't really, you know, I didn't say much to anybody. I wrote it down in the book, but I was like, this is insane. You know, I've had moments like that a lot in my career where I'm in the room with the childhood heroes or working, playing with some of my favorite artists as a child and I'm working with them. And, um, that's, a, I'm not jaded. I still kind of, I kind of pitch myself going, oh, that's pretty fucking cool that I'm in the room with these guys. You know? so, I'm okay. still a fan. You know what I mean? I'm not some, Oh, you know, tragic hipster, you know, that's a, you know, just dismisses everything like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to be too cool. Not, you're working with some of the Beatles, man. I'm sorry. Ringo's a dear, dear friend of mine now, but I still have respect for where that is. You know, one of the greatest gifts he ever gave me was writing a, a couple songs together and, and he played drums and he had Paul play bass. And I'm like, oh, I got me, Paul and Ringo. That's what the credits read, you know. And I'm like, are you kidding me? If you had told me that, I would have said I'd be the first man on Venus, you know? So, I mean, you've had all this success with Hold the Line, Rosanna, Africa, Toto, mm -hmm. the whole thing. And you just said that, that you're still a, a music fan. Do, do, you, do you still actively seek out new music and, and, and are looking for new sounds and new bands? Or are you in that place where, you know, 
You know what I mean? Like, no, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I've it, being really honest. What's on top forty radio doesn't really interest me much because it's really all about machine music. You know what I mean? I mean, I understand it, but you know, if you if somebody sent me a the top forty of nineteen sixty eight, what was in the top forty and these are every song is a legendary song that's lasted 45 years and more. I mean, will you really be saying that about what's in the top 40 today, 45 years from now? I mean, what was you know, some two, two old, some, you know, two old people dancing at their 50th wedding anniversary to what's happening now. Smack that bitch up. Whack her ass. You know, it's like somehow I don't think it's, you know, a, a love song, you know, of course, I'm being sarcastic, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just old, man. I'm, I don't get it. You know, I'm not supposed to dig the music of my kids listen to, although my kids listen to classic rock. So what do I know? You know? Uh, yeah. It, um, recently, the Steve Lukather 25th anniversary L3 signature guitar was announced. Um, if you can, just talk to me a little bit about that guitar and this, the, the Bermuda blue and, and the whole... <laughs> well, that's a new one. I mean, I've been working with uh, the entire Music Man family. Uh, you know, Sterling Ball and his sons, uh, Brian and Scotty, and <clears throat> Dudley Dudley Gimple, who uh, you know used to be a luthier over uh, another guitar company I used to work with when I was younger. But I mean, I actually got into this company because Eddie Van Halen was making a guitar with them. I really loved the guitar they were making for Ed. And Sterling and I are now you know been best friends ever since. You know that ever since the eighties. So he said, I had severed a relationship that I had prior to that. And he goes, let me build you a guitar. Like, give me your favorite guitar and let me see what it is. And let's, let us try to come up with something. And I love Dad's guitar. Matter of fact, I got the third one they ever made. I still have it. <clears throat> and, um, I started playing these guitars and I loved them and they've been making them for me. And we've had, uh, this is the fourth in- incarnation of it or permutation perhaps is a better word. Um, and it's been really successful. I mean, I get tickled when I see Don Felder playing one or somebody, you know, somebody else's, you know, name guys playing the guitar. I'm getting a raise, but I sell a lot of them, man. And it's done really, really well for them and for me because I get a little taste and I'm honored to play their instruments and I really play them. I don't have a special one. I, same one you pull off the wall. Um, and I'm, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's the finest American made instrument. That, the, that you can buy. It's not made in Korea somewhere or some island somewhere in a sweatshop with cheap wood. So these guys actually, it's, it's like basically a handmade guitar. They, they use some technology, but you know, it's real hands are on it, making sure it's right. So the quality control is huge and they're an amazing company. I've never worked with people that have been so accommodating and I love them too. They're my family. Yeah. And that you know that's that's one important thing that I'm gonna that I've noticed throughout the book and throughout our conversation and throughout you know your social media presence and stuff, the importance of family and loyalty. And when I look at different bands that have had a lot of success, the Metallicas, the the Def Leppard, yeah. the Journeys, they all have, Iron Maiden. They all have these staff. And, hey, you want to hear something funny? Yeah. You want to yeah. hear something funny? My son's dating Jonathan Cain's daughter. Wow. How's that? How's that working out? Uh, no, but good. She's a lovely girl. I mean, you know, I haven't seen Jonathan in ages. We, I worked on his first solo album in '77 before he was even in the Babies. So we have, uh, and I'm friends with dear friends with Neil and all that stuff. And again, band drama. I don't want to hear about it. I'm a nice guy. I love everybody. Right. 
but uh, we all have our own band drama. But I thought it was kind of a kick. I'm going, maybe I should have said that. <laughs> hey, my son really likes her, and, it's, uh, and she's sweet, and I'm happy for him. And He's got a kick-ass band, ZFG. You should check that stuff out. That's some strong-ass rock and roll music. And they they got a bidding war going on right now. And you know, my son wrote Hailstorm's uh, first single. He wow. co-wrote it with those guys. So he got, that's where he got his first gold record. He's a badass guitar player, songwriter, good kid. Proud of him. I'll, I'll check that out. Now, anyway, sorry, I got no, off the no, track, no, man. But no, but, but, I but do much, that all the time, man. Much like you standing on stage with Ringo and Paul and all that, uh, Neil, Sean, and I have become texting buddies. And that's I love a, Neil, man. That's a strange thrill for me to go... Oh, Neil Sean's texting me. But anyway, uh, but but I just want to get back to this concept. I know, of loyalty. man. When Ringo when when Ringo texts me, I still go, "Hey, man, dude, Ringo, Ringo texts me." <laughs> I know, right? It's like, I, I'm not kidding. I mean, he's my friend. I adore him. We're pals, and I'm past all the fanboy shit. But it's still Ringo, you know. Oh, I I, I totally get it. But <laughs> I just want to talk to you because a lot of bands are starting out like your son and stuff, and 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 they ask me and they ask people like you, "Well, how are you successful? And how do you get ahead?" And, and the one thing I've noticed with all these bands that I've mentioned is this loyalty. The fact that the lighting guy has been with you for 20 years. The fact that the sound guy has been. Is that how Toto oh, runs his business? Yeah. We're a family business. There's no separation between us and our crew. We are best friends. Everybody eats together, hangs together, laughs together, cries together. Uh, in the old days, used to party together. Um, you know, uh, we're very loyal to people that are loyal to us and we take them along for the ride. You know, uh, our front of house guys, excellent. We've kept him forever. Um, uh, we had the a killer lighting guy for decades, but you know, he had started a family and then didn't want to be on the road anymore, blah, blah, you know? Uh, but most of the people with me, I mean, Johnny, my guitar tech's been with me since I met him in Ringo in 2012 and he does everything with me. We do, we, I keep him busy all year cause I work so much. So I'm very loyal. I love to have my family around. I love to have, like, we usually have a gene pool of people. Like, there's, like, three tour managers we work with, depending on who's available and where we're going in the world. And, you know, stuff like that. We have a couple people deep in, in each position, but they're all longtime friends and family. And we take care of everybody, and we love them, you know? We respect them, because they actually work harder than we do. Is that is that advice, though, that you would give to a young band, is yeah. find people you Always. can trust and stick with them? And treat him right. Well, here's the thing. My dad was behind the camera crew guy, right? So he, I grew up with like, let me tell you something, kid. If you ever get in a position to work with other people and there's a quote unquote crew, you respect those guys. Those are the guys that really work. He goes, I can't stand half these Hollywood schmoozy actors. They're all assholes and stuff. My dad, you know, and he goes, so I grew up a crew guy. So I, I, I go out of my way to help the stage, thank the stagehands as I'm walking out. I'm going, hey, man, thanks a lot, guys, you know, because I have respect for what they do. That's hard work, heavy lifting, tough hours, you know. And, uh, you know, if, if I like to have a happy working place where there's no tension. You know, some places you have to walk on anxious, oh, so-and-so's got, oh, oh, he's a bad mood today or whatever. You know, everybody gets in a bad mood, and everybody barks once in a while. But you know, come on, man. Yeah. Just, you know, I say I'm sorry if I've been out of line, if I got upset about something that I maybe was a little overly dramatic about because I had a shitty day or whatever. I walk back and go, man, I'm really sorry. I was a dick today. I'm sorry. Just try to make it right. You know, everybody's allowed to have a bad day, but in general, I like to keep a happy workplace. Which is smart, and and I'll I'll just tell you a quick story of of. Me last weekend, Steve Harris, who plays bass with Iron Maiden, came through Canada. Yeah, sure. 
came through Ottawa and Montreal with his little with his band, not little band, his band, uh, British Lion. And what I found remarkable about hanging around the venues both days is that he carted in all the T-shirt boxes. He did all the merch mm-hmm. count. When it was time to set up the gear, he was up there twisting the knobs and and moving the speakers. And I was like, "Holy mackerel!" Here's Steve Harris. And and then, by the way, after he left Canada on their five day tour, he took the crew to Panama for a vacation. And I'm like, you know well, what? You know, that's that's how a you cool do thing it. to do. Yeah, and those are the guys that will kill for you. And that's the thing. Those, that's what you got to do. Because when you got a team that's going to kill for you and kill for the Toto team and kill for the Iron Maiden, that's how you succeed. And that's how you stick yeah. around for 40 years. Now, yeah. we're, we're closing in on, on an hour, so I, we'll have to Yeah, do I know. I mean, I got a guy <laughs> beeping through right now. He's going to be real pissed off from Finland. <laughs> yeah, so, so let, me, let me just finish with this. In the book, you, have, you, you, you characterize Toto as being seen as the redheaded stepchild of rock and roll for over 40 years. But... Looking at it now, because it, it obviously was just critics. Toto for huge Africa. We've said we've said it. Huge, huge, huge. Uh-huh. Why do you think the critics panned you so much, and yet the fans loved you so much? Because you're not doing this for forty years. If people like me hate you, you're just not. Uh, you know, fans hate you. You're not. You know. Well, they're not fans if they hate you. Um, right. You know, not everybody likes everything. I don't like mayonnaise. You can doll it up any way you want, but it's still mayonnaise. And <laughs> I'm with you. There's nothing you're going to do to change that feeling. If you don't like us, that's cool. I don't like everything either. But you don't have to be malicious and hateful about it. That's the difference. You know, I mean, there are people that just, we apparently, we get under some people's foreskin and dig into their balls for some reason. I don't get, you know, we didn't hurt anybody. Plus, we probably played on half their record collection. They don't even realize it. You know, uh, we're, we're just maybe confusing to them because we have that pedigree as well as being, oh, you're not a real band. I, when I played on Cheap Chicks' record, fucking funny goes, well, you guys aren't a real band. I said, excuse me, man. We went to high school together. Okay? I don't know how much more real that can be to you. You know? And by the and, way, uh, Voice is one of the best Cheap Trick songs ever. Well, thanks. Uh, I played most of the stuff on that. You know, yeah. I, I didn't, listen, Rick's a great guitar player. He didn't need me, but Tom Worman wanted something else. He hired Jay Graydon, my my brother, to play the solo on uh, one, one of their early hits. Uh, I forget which one it was. Some kind of twangy, weird little solo that wasn't in Rick's wheelhouse. You know. Well, let me let me quickly relate a, a cheap trick story to you from from years ago. Um, there's a drummer named Alan Schwartzberg who has played yeah, on all kinds. Con- you know yeah, Alan. Yeah. And during an interview, yeah, well, I don't he, know him. I know he is yeah. right. He big session guy. And during the, an interview, he tells me that he added some drums on a Cheap Trick album. Yeah. Bunny Carlos fall, phones up and says, "You have to take that interview down. Cheap Trick has always been just the four guys. There's no studio no. musicians. We've never ghosted." Blah Bullshit. blah blah. No, <laughs> that's funny. Jay Jay Winding played piano on all their stuff. Then got no credit. Did the arrangements on, you know, "Gonna Raise Hell." Got no credit. You know, there's a lot of people. On a lot of records, I've had to sign non-disclosure shit on stuff, you know, so right. that's bullshit, you know? It, it is, and it's just funny because since that interview, they, they've they refused to do interviews with me, and it's, it's just like, but first of all, Alan made the claim. Oh, I didn't Jesus. make the claim. Yeah, and over we, it, man. I know. You know fuck these guys. And, well, and, but, well, not maybe not fuck them because they're still a great band, but it, it is sort not of not them. I just mean, I mean, you know, <laughs> that attitude, right? But of course, yeah, you played on I voices. Like, I love and... the band. I love Cheap Trick. I'm not got nothing. I got no beef with them. But 
Bonnie, Bonnie was kind of a dick to me when I played on that song. I'm like, really, man? You know, what I do to you? And I was just 20, 21 years old. What are you picking on me for? Oh, you guys aren't a real band. I said, fuck, we're not, man. Yeah, but, 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 so, okay, so, so I'll just finish then on this since we were talking about. Do you still have that perception that you are the redheaded stepchild? Because you, you're not. I mean, 40 some years, well, millions it, of albums. It, it depends on what group of people you're in. Um, for the, the masses of the world, we're not. We've proved ourselves. We've taken all of our punches, and we've, the success that we're enjoying right now at this late time is really, I'm really grateful for. And I, I'm, you know, it's like, wow, that was really, what are the odds of that? You know? So I'm not bittered by it. You know, I'm just like, whatever, man, if you don't like it, you don't great. Don't like it. This, we live in this era where like, you, you know, it's impossible to keep your mouth shut. You know I mean? I was born, you know, I was raised, uh, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. Well, that's gone. That's erased that from the, <laughs> from the vocabulary of human beings. Now everybody's Oops. after each other at this point. Yeah, it really is. Now I know you have other interviews, and we've we've done almost. An I do. Hour. I'm in a lot of trouble right now. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll have to do a part two at some point because we. we well, I'd love s- to, man. Please, man. Oh. Let's do it again anytime. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. I appreciate your time. Yeah, we've only scratched the surface, but uh, yeah. So we'll 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 pick it up at another date, and uh, we'll talk about other stuff. But a great pleasure, and uh, just as as a fan, thank you for the music. Thank you for not listening hey, to pal. the critics and. Uh, there you oh, go. man, hey, everybody's a critic, man. You know, if, if I worried about that, I would have quit in 1978. Well, don't, and uh, and I'm glad you didn't. I and, can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. We're, we're both addicted to this stuff. So so anyway, there you go. And uh, from, as we okay. say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much, and we'll see you oh, soon. I'll look forward to seeing you up there, man. Take care of yourself, brother. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. And there you have it, folks, my chat with Steve Lukather. I will remind you again, the gospel according to Luke, definitely, definitely worth checking out. And do check out Toto 14, a great album that came out, I believe, in 2017. Uh, just just a fun band. I, and, and, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame be damned. But uh, Night Ranger, my dear friend. Um Gotta love the band, Brad Gillis. He exploded onto the scene, obviously a little bit before the Aussie thing, but the Aussie thing years ago elevated him to that next level of public consciousness. And Jack Blades, just fantastic. He, the, the, he Not only does he do the Night Ranger stuff, but he's also done this work with Damn Yankees. And um, we've had a few... Great white connections to this, right? We, Michael Lardy was a member. Well, the Night Ranger connection there actually goes back to um, the late summer of 1987 when uh, Night Ranger were kind enough to take uh, Great White out opening with them. And we were playing state fairs across the country, um, you know, after the tractor pull. It would be Great White and Night Ranger. Um, so that was kind of amusing. And um, I was always amused by the fact that they was Night Ranger, this was in the early days of sponsorship, and we had to play under a huge Breck shampoo banner, um, which made it all very spinal. Um, but, you know, that was a fun tour, and it was, uh, it felt good. Rock Me was starting to really hit on radio um and then later on um michael who 
was, you know, my engineer and co-producer and co-writer. And some people said he was my little blonde bitch, but I think that was a little unkind. Um, but he, he was kind of cute back then, I have to admit. Um, he actually ended up in Night Ranger for a while uh, playing keyboards. And again, I think Jack Blades and Don Dorkin uh, worked on a, a great white record when they were on Portrait after we had parted ways. Um, but, you know, I have to say, obviously, my opinion is that chemistry didn't work and they didn't quite get it. But there you go. Well, we'll have to explore the whole portrait thing for a while because that was a very strange label. A lot of these bands had gone through the mill with the the grunge thing, and then they came out the other side, sort of bruised and battered. And then they, Sony said, "Well, okay, John Culloden, run off and with Cinderella and Great White and Rat and all these bands, and go resurrect their careers to multi-platinum status." And then it just, you know, the reason we didn't have a Cinderella album or a new Cinderella album since those days is because Sony took the tapes and there was a lawsuit and they wouldn't allow the release and blah, 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 blah. And I don't know what it did for Great White and, and the rat thing just, but the rat thing probably would have gone either way because that's just what rat does. And uh. Well, it all, it, it, all, it all kind of fizzled. Um, uh, but you have to give... John Kladner is props. Um, his methodology was probably directly opposite to mine in that, and you can, you can see it with Aerosmith in particular, and to a certain degree with David Coverdale. He would take a band that had maybe seen a better day or not quite had their day and polish them and polish them and polish them. Um, you know, and when I'm feeling particularly opinionated and when I might have had a couple of tequilas, I might sit there and say, yeah, he got them so polished that they should have been on aisle 13 in the local supermarket on the cheese shelf. Um, you know, because I have to say that for me, Aerosmith is rocks. It's toys in the attic. It's got a little bit of dark grit and edge to the attitude and the sound. Um, and, you know, Love in an Elevator really didn't do that much for me as a rock and roll song or a rock and roll band. But he sold a lot of records and they sell an awful lot of craft cheese. And I think the thinking with Portrait was, well, we'll take these bands, you know, coming out of the other side of uh, grunge and you can do the same. But I don't think it's a system that really always works and I think John was just in tune with the moment um, that if you do a you know you spend $150,000 on a video and you have a very slick track you can pile up a lot of record sales for David Geffen oh you see you're, you're just too jaded about Aerosmith it's it's all about pink that's it's your favorite crayon <laughs> when I when I think Aerosmith why would you think Lord of the Thighs when you have pink um, just real quick <laughs> or, train, uh, or train kept a rolling um, which, mean, which had Steve know. Hunter and Dick Wagner do the guitar part so it wasn't even Aerosmith it was sort of a three-fifth Aerosmith with two studio yeah, guys Yeah, but, but let me tell you Mitch in my cups at two or three o'clock in the morning plenty of times that's been my go-to Aerosmith track when I'm going you know what the neighbors are a mile and a half away listen to this
That's interesting because uh, I, I have an Aerosmith song like that. When I used to play competitive tennis when I was 18, 19, 20 and stuff, before every match, the one that got me going was Mama Kin. And then eventually the Guns N' Roses version came out and I tried and it's a great version, but there's something about that Aerosmith version that's just yeah. like, uh, Mama Kin. But uh, I'll finish with this before we get over to Jack Blades because we, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, different albums and uh, the writing process and how he approaches songwriting. Uh, Michael Lardy on, on his resume has had production credits or studio credits with Kajagugu of, of course, the Too Shy. Shy, shy. I don't, you don't want me to sing. Um, right. Were, do you know if he played on, on or, or if he had anything to do with that song in particular? Because that's actually, you know, cheesy or not, very iconic and very very well known. Did, did he have any, were you involved at all with Kajagugu? Did he ever talk to you about Kajagugu? Um, oh, come on, really? Come on. Yeah, no. Um, no? Okay. And and that was definitely not something that Michael would uh, proclaim proclaim loudly but on the other hand uh working out of total access where he was a second engineer um he actually worked on some some pretty cool punk records and bands and yeah. he doesn't mention those much either well he did black uh, flag yes and you know more than once i've said you've got to highlight that more in in your resume for your credibility um but no you got to understand that Michael, when I first knew him and when he was working in the studio, was incredibly new wave and had the most preposterous hairstyle and the most ridiculous rainbow of covers in it. And believe you me, when I sat down with Jack and Mark and I said, I want this guy in the band, they were looking at me like, what are you thinking about? And I'll tell you, Michael had that attitude as well he was he, he was a little bit of a um a, a music snob and i remember we did a uh, a show and i insisted that he play with the band on stage and the show went incredibly well and as he came off stage a california girl grabbed him and gave him a blowjob right then and there and the next day when he turned up at the studio, the hair color was gone, the hair style had completely changed, and he looked at me and he said, I'm in. Not only would he, do we move along to Jack Blades on that story, uh, but it, it turns out well because today I was pitched a sponsor, Adam and Eve, which is all about uh, sex toys. So you might be hearing one of those ads in a minute. And also, we started off with William Shatner and if some might even say the ludicrous, doing a Christmas album with Henry Rollins. And we finish with Michael Lardy, who did some studio stuff with Black Flag that included Henry Rollins. So we bookmark the episode, or uh, bookend, I should say, the episode for with Henry Rollins to Henry Rollins. See? We did it. Awesome. Let's so, get over to Jack Blades and here, see if he's uh, got something cutting to say. Yeah, so here is the one, the only... Jack Blades. We are speaking with Jack Blades of Night Ranger. Their latest album is Don't Let Up. It came out last year. Did it absolutely fantastic. So fantastic that currently they have Truth, a single from the album, racing up the classic rock charts. Jack, absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. We did this last year when the album came out, but I'm glad that a year later it still has legs. It's still going. Um, just pleasure to have you on. 
Well, it's great to be on. It's great to be on. It's great to be talking about the song Truth. It's great when you, you know, when you get a, get a chance to have another song um, released. And, and you know, the song Truth is such a, such a I, I think this world needs a lot of truth right now. <laughs> yes. But I think so. I think, it's a, I think it's a perfect song for the perfect time right now. It really is. And I also want to talk to you about your live show, because as I was mentioning just before we got started, I saw you at M3 earlier this year. I've seen you in the past. It just always, always delivers. But since we're talking about truth and we're talking about songs, I want to get into your sort of concept for for songwriting, because you don't just do Night Ranger. You, you've had songs appear, obviously, with Damn Yankees, but also with Aerosmith and other artists. Um, the basic question is, what makes a good song? And then maybe we'll start talking about how you sort of get to that. But but what is the basis of a good song in terms of your songwriting and your craft? Well, I think that, uh, you know, songwriting, first of all, songwriting is one of those things that it's a function of the more you do it, the better you get. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you just keep writing song after song after song, and you're going to hit on a you know, you'll hit on the, the killer tune one of these days or something like that. But songwriting is one of those things that you do get better the more you do it and everything like that. For me, for me, I was always influenced by, you know, by, by, by um, a big chorus, you know, like a, a real catchy chorus. I mean, when the Beatles first came out, all those choruses, you know what I mean? She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's been a hard day's not, you know, just, uh, just chorus after chorus after chorus and just driving that home. And I think that's something that, that, that kind of always locked in with me. And I've always been a big fan of like, you know, real songsmiths, like, you know, like Paul Simon, you know what I mean? James Taylor, um, you know, just um, even Sly Stone in the early days. I mean, that's crazy how great those songs were. If you think about it, you know, the way he wrote those songs and, and the lyrics and the ideas behind them and Bruce Springsteen, those kind of, those kind of things. But I mean, for me, it's just, you know, just taking in everything that you see around you, taking in everything that you feel, taking in everything that you, you're thinking. And, and songwriting is like, you know, I mean, that's about as close to a person's soul as you're going to see when they write a song and lay it on the line. That's like you looking into their, into their soul, like deep inside, you know, deep inside them. And so, so I think songwriting is just, you know, it's always come pretty easy, easy for me. I've never, you know, I've never had to really struggle with it. And the only time I've ever struggled are always the songs that aren't very good. You know, the easy ones write themselves. That's for sure. That really is for sure. Um, when you're writing for some of the other artists that you've written for, do you approach it the same way or, or, or do you sort of listen to their back catalog and say, okay, an Aerosmith song has these elements and, and I need to have... How do you sort of approach it when it's not for Night Ranger and it's not for a Jack Blade solo album and it's not for a project that you're a member of? Well, I think that you just in my in for me, I just sort of get into the headspace of like, hey, I'm an Aerosmith. Hey, you know, it's like, you know, let me imagine for a day that I'm Ozzy Osbourne, like when Tommy and I wrote uh, songs on the Osmosis record, you yeah. know, and, which, and, which... and we started, you know. I mean, which is a hard, it was pretty wild thing to do, but, but actually it's a very freeing feeling. You know what I mean? I mean, you get to be so, it's like an actor, you know what I mean? It's like an actor uh, gets to act in a play or act in a movie. He gets to become that person, you know, John Wayne is Davy Crockett or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, 
I get to be Ozzy Osbourne for a day. So let me just write the way, I, you know, with the, the, that cool, crazy, insane way. Or let's hang out with the guys in Aerosmith with, with Joe and Steve and Steven. And I never, I never really, you know, try to listen to their old back catalog and try to figure it all out. Because when you're writing with someone, that's who they are. And that's kind of what they do anyway. So if you just kind of put your headspace in their, in their world and you just create and then they, you know, and then what they add is who they are to the song. And then the song becomes an Ozzy Osbourne song, a journey song. I mean, when I wrote, you know, when I write songs with Neil Sean for journey and things like that, I mean, we sit down and, you know, suddenly you're, you're, you know, you're in journey, which is a fun thing. I mean, I enjoy it very much. I enjoy songwriting with other people because it's always like two heads are always better than one. By the way, speaking of of, of Neil, he, I speak to Neil quite often, and and what a talent! And, and he's going to do that journey through time thing next year. I would love to see you get up there and sing a song or two with him just to to get that going. But um, just quickly back, oh, yeah. to, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be a blast? I mean, just just the the combination yeah. of yeah. you two on stage. But let me get back to 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 the albums and Night Ranger. You know, the last few years, all the way back. To, I'm going to go to 2011, somewhere in California, High Road, Don't Let Up. They're not just later day Night Ranger albums. They are actually very essential to the discography. The music has been getting better and better. You're not just phoning it in. Um, talk to me about making new albums and, and the motivation to keep going. Because listen, we all know you could go out there, put the name on the marquee, don't do, don't tell me you love me and Sister Christian and Rockin' American. Well, Fans would show up, they would love it, they'd get 15 greatest hits and home happy. But that's not good enough for Night Ranger. you got to do new music, and not only do new music, but at a level that's maybe even better than what you were doing before. You know, I, for, for us, for Night Ranger, especially for me, I mean, I, I, I have this thing that where, you know, you, st- you know, when you stop creating, that's when you start like shriveling up and dying inside. You know, I mean, that's, that's, I'll always just keep creating. I'll always write a song. I'll always be playing. I'll always be writing. I'll always be coming up with lyrics, coming up with melodies, coming up with songs. I mean, that's, that's just who I am. That's who I, who I, you know, what I'll always, always do. And, and with the newer, newer stuff with Night Ranger, it's, it's, um, it's a bit challenging because you can't, you know, get away with, not get away with, but you can't sort of like in the earlier days when we were in our twenties and stuff like that, you could write, you know, a song about, Oh, come on, you know, baby, give it to me, you know, or whatever. <laughs> You're like, come right. on, let's do it. Or what, you know? Yeah. 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 And now you do something like that and people go creepy. That's kind of weird. You know what I mean? So, so you gotta, you know, you have to think about it. And, and, and fortunately enough, it's, it's like a song like truth. You know, it's all about, it's all about, you know, give me truth and, 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 and writing about different scenarios of, of people in their lives and what they're feeling and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, the actual um, title track of the first song, Don't Let Up, was, you know, very much autobiographical. You know, it's all about what Night Ranger is, is we're like, we'll never let up. We'll just keep playing. I mean, High Road, somewhere in California with Growing Up in California, that was totally autobiographical. It was my entire life. If you listen to it, you know exactly from from beginning to where I am right now. Basically, is is in the lyrics of that, of that song. So, so the newer albums, I, I think we approach them um, lyrically that way. But when we get together musically, we decided on the last three albums to do it exactly the way we did on the first four or five albums. That is, Kelly, Brad, and I get in a room, 
and just start jamming on song, jamming on ideas. We lock onto something that sounds good, and we all go, oh, let's like kind of develop that, and we'll run it down, and then we'll sing some words to it, and then we'll go and record it right away. Then we'll move on to the next thing. So, so we keep it fresh in that respect, and I think, I think that's what people feel when they hear the, the, the last three albums. It's almost like a trilogy, you know, with this, you know, Somewhere in California, High Road, and Don't Let Up albums. And so I think that's what people feel when they, when they hear those records. Yeah, and and listen, they 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 are spectacular records. Uh, so you're talking about keeping it fresh. Uh, Jeff Watson obviously left. Uh, Joel Hoekstra obviously left. You've got Carrie Kelly in there. What does changing members do to the chemistry of the band and keeping it fresh? Because I know Carrie personally. He's great talent. Got a lot of great ideas. Uh, Joel also great talent. A lot of great ideas. What does it do to the band to have that? Does it does it create a freshness, or does it put more pressure on you guys to do all the heavy lifting? No, I think it I think it totally creates a freshness because um, you know I mean you 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 have it's the same thing like songwriting you know you have you know I know what I would come up with and I know what I would do playing guitar and write you know and, and piano and writing songs because that's what I've done for the last thirty six years with Night Ranger. But when you have sort of new blood come into the um, into the fold. You know, it's a, you still have what you would normally do and you can always, you know, say, Hey, we should do this or that or the other, but having someone like Carrie Kelly in the band, I mean, he comes from such a great sort of stones, sort of natural, real, real organic guitar playing, you know, his rhythms and, 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 and his solos and everything like that. Very like Keith Richards, Keith Richards ish. Like, and I think that, I think for, for us, for Night Ranger, I think that's, made us a better, you know, a better band. It's made, made me want to play better, made me want to play sort of more, you know, in, in the pocket. And so in a lot of respects, it's gotten, each time it's gotten better. You know what I mean? I mean, don't get me wrong. The original lineup of the band with Alan Fitzgerald and, and, and Jeff Watson was just an amazing band too. And those guys are completely over the top talents, just great, great, great talents. But you know what, you know, life throws you some, um, some you know balls and strikes and and you gotta you, you gotta swing and you gotta do what you gotta do and and that's what we've done and that's what we'll continue to do yeah and you got to keep moving forward and like i mentioned before at the m3 show for example this year uh, earlier in may it, just spectacular i mean the the energy and the delivery and, and the believability of the performance just other level i mean it's otherworldly um 24 strings and a drummer, the live and acoustic thing you did back in 2012 was maybe not courageous, but it certainly was, a, a, you know, different to, to strip back the songs. Is that something you would like to do again? And, and what was it like for you to go into that project and do those songs and, and find sort of new arrangements and, and really bring them down to their, to their core and, and not have all the bells and whistles? Well, you know what? It was actually really fun. Because um, Night Ranger never did an unplugged, you know, Night Ranger never, we never did like an MTV unplugged. Damn Yankees did. And it was really fun. We had a, we did an unplugged thing um, when, when, when um, unplugged, you know, when MTV unplugged first came out, but the Night Ranger had never done that. So we're like, you know, we've always wanted to do that. And we've always played a few songs acoustically and it's been fun and everything like that. So, so we, you know, got together with like 150 of our best friends and buddies from the Bay Area at Bob Weir's studio, and you know the guy from the Grateful Dead at his studio in um, San Rafael, California, 
And we thought, well, you know what, we'll make our own unplugged. And so that's kind of what we did. It was a blast. I mean, we changed some songs around. We changed some arrangements around. We kept some things the same. We flipped this around. We did this. We did that. And it was so much fun. In fact, we're thinking about putting together a, a an acoustic Night Ranger, an acoustic, um, you know, tour sometime uh, early part of next year, which would actually, I think the fans would absolutely love it because, I mean, we get up there, tell stories, bag on each other, and, and, and it was just so much fun. I mean, Tommy Shaw and I did it. We did it with Shaw Blades, and we toured, we toured the country, and it was some of the most fun I've ever had. Yeah, and so you just answered the question that I was going to follow up with. Is, is this something you plan on revisiting? Is it something that you would plan on revisiting maybe in an album and, and take the greatest hits and, and give them that kind of treatment or take some of the lesser hits and then maybe reinvent them in that kind of treatment other than just doing a tour? Well, that's the kind of thing you can do. I mean, you can, you can, you know, you can do rearrangements. I mean, you'll always, it's always fun to play the greatest hits and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And you can pull off songs like sister Christian and, but I mean, who would ever expect, don't tell me you love me to be acoustic, you know, and as they said, it never could be done, but we did it. You know what I mean? And, and the rock and America and things like that. And also on the, on the lesser known songs, the songs like deep, you know, deep tracks like rumors in the air or, you know, or see me away, or, you know, uh, you know, at night she sleeps off the, you know, I mean, just, uh, you know, or, or chipping away. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways you can go about those songs. I mean, I think that, I think that, um, um, Eric Clapton set the bar when he did, you know, when he did Layla and he changed the whole arrangement and made it this most amazing thing. And, you know, a standalone song on its own. He really did. Um, let me quickly go over here to Man in Motion. It is the 30th anniversary of the album. It came out in 1988. Uh, what are some of your memories of that album? Are the, is it all good? Is it all bad? I mean, it is sort of the one that was the last one before feeding, uh, feeding off the mojo. What was the sort of the vibe in the band at that time? Did you know that this was going to be the last one? Did, did you... You know, is it is it a happy 30th anniversary? Yeah, you know, they were the not really. I mean, I was not. Okay. You know, I mean, uh, you know, that was a that was an interesting time because Fitz left the band. You know, he got out of the band, and um, and we had a different producer, Keith Olson, who did you know who did a lot of great you know huge records and stuff like that. But I I don't think the songs were completed enough. I they, to me they don't sound. You know, some of the choruses sonically don't sound like they have the right instrumentation. And they're all, you know, just maybe just too many just guitars and things like that. Not the sort of Night Ranger sound. Then others, you know, there's a few songs on that record that are really, you know, that, that are really good. But it was a it was kind of a harsh time and everybody was going in different directions at that time. And, you know, the band lasted until, you know, that released the 88. And I think we broke up in like February of 89 or something, you know, and. And then, um, you know, then I formed the damn Yankees with Ted uh, Nugent and Tommy Shaw. And um, then those, um, I think Brad and Kelly and, with another um, another guy made that feeding off the Mojo record. I was, of course, involved in that. Right. I was in the damn Yankees at the time. We all, we all got that back together again, I think, in 1996. And um, but, yeah, that was, you know, the, the man in motion wasn't, you know, a lot of people love that record. A lot of people just think it's, I mean, sonically it sounds really great, you know, and everything like that. But I don't know, man. I mean, I just, you know, you know, if you wish you could like dial it back in time and go back and like, ah, oh, if I could only do this and this and add this and that, and 
rewrite this and that. You know, that's kind of the way I look at the Man in Motion album. Yeah, and and of course, you know, look, you you look at Keith Olsen, he, Ozzy Osbourne's No Rest for the Wicked, Scorpions, Crazy World, Bad Company, Sammy Hager, White Snake, Foreigner. I mean, it's not like you had some schmo in there. You had a guy who was able to deliver a great album, and so I'm, sonically, I'm not surprised it sounds spectacular. I mean, it did. I mean, it, the guy, the guy's great. <laughs> Keith is great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Keith is Keith is fantastic. But I I just think that. Uh, you know, it could have been like pounded more on songs to like, you know, this has got to be a little bit more like this. This got to be a little more like that. And then towards the end of the thing, I think he lost interest. So I think that caused some problems, too. And, um, you know, but that's, hey, man, water under the bridge. It really water is. Under the bridge. Life goes on. And I, I don't even think about it, actually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ted, Ted, by the way, is is the guest on, the, on my current episode. And, and um, we were talking about the damn Yankees and the infamous third album if it'll ever come out and uh, i have a feeling between talking to him and tommy that will never come out under any <laughs> any circumstance whatsoever it will, it will never come out yeah. no that'll never come out actually everybody's used some of those songs anyway on on their solo records i think ted put something on tommy used the song i used the song shine on on my solo record i mean they're you know, I think four, four, five of those things have been coming out. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, yeah, that will never come out, man. That was a disaster too. That was not. That was something that uh, you know you try to like put you know fifty pounds or something into a you know ten pound bag, and it just didn't work. It didn't work. So, so you did mention solo albums. Uh, Rock and Roll Ride is currently the last solo album, and you do, and we have been talking about songwriting. Have you? thought about writing a new album just for you just your voice just your message just your brand for the lack of a better word is that something that interests you at all and you just don't have time or eh, i'd rather be the guy in night ranger making rock and roll for you know the masses kind of thing well you know i've i've you know i love making a solo record because you can do you know you can do what you want to do and it's not sort of like a a committee, but you know, Night Ranger for me is an it's an easy thing too. It's not a it's not a hard thing between Kelly Brad and I. We just go, yeah or no or this or that or we all like this or we all don't like this. And and um, everybody's got a pretty good sense of you know at this stage of the game what what's what you know what we like and what we don't like. And um, but it is fun making a solo record because you can just do all your stuff. You can write some you know different kind of you know songwriting so you know songs. You can write about different kind of subjects. You don't have that that um, it's got to sound like Night Ranger or Damn Yankees or, you know, you know, vibe or anything like that. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's fun to do. And, and I've been so busy lately. I, you know, I haven't had a chance to even think about that. Yeah. Uh, moving forward uh, in, into 2019, what are some of the plans for the band and for yourself? Don't let up, of course, was 2017. Theoretically, we could be saying it's time for another one. Are, are we? Are we writing? Are we demoing? Are we anywhere near the next new album? Or is it like, hey, we, we we've just done three in the last six years. Relax, there, buddy. Uh, where are we in terms of <laughs> right? Where are we in terms of new music yeah. and then touring? Well, you know, I mean, we've got a lot, a lot of stuff going on for next year, and and uh, just uh, recently, uh, we did uh, last week we played. Um, the entire Dawn Patrol album and the entire Midnight Madness album, like in their entirety, start to, um, start to finish. Um, and we had so much fun doing that. I think we're going to do like a few more of those. We're doing one in, in um, November 29th in, in, 
in uh, Denver, Colorado at the Paramount Theater. And yep. I think we're going to do a few more of those next year. I mean, we're going to Japan next year. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff going on next year. And and there also is talk about doing, you know, getting another record. You know, I don't know. If you, you got a trilogy of the last three. When there's four of them, what do you call them? The quad? The quad. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, the, the quad. Night Ranger, the quad. Maybe we'll call the album Quad. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the but quad. I mean, there is talk about that. And, and for me... I just log songs. I sit down at the piano and just like play ideas and play things. I do the same thing with my guitar and everything like that. And I just log them. You know, I just put them down on my phone and I just have them all and hope my phone never crashes. Yeah, unlike uh, Kirk Hammett of Metallica, <laughs> who said he lost whatever 500 song ideas. Um, and then I'll, I'll finish with this because I do have to, to get over to this uh, Cooper thing. Uh, you can still rock in America. You, of course, had Glenn Hughes contribute backing vocals to that. What was sort of that? What was the story there? Was he like recording next door, and then you said, "Hey, come on over." Is he a longtime friend? Did did you say, "Hey, we need an extra"? What sort of like? How did that come together? Well, I mean, Glenn. First of all, Glenn's a phenomenal talent. We were such huge Deep Purple fans, anyway, and so so just you know, and we we met Glenn when we were in L.A. cutting the album. You know, we were cutting. We met Glenn at the end of of, of the uh, Dawn Patrol record in L.A. because he was hanging out in L.A. a lot. And um, then we started, you know, we started hanging out. We started going out everywhere together. We'd be up at the Rainbow together and and um, we'd be hanging out together. We'd go to dinner, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he was just in, you know, we said, hey, we got to finish. You know, we got to sing this chorus tonight. Come on down to the studio with us. Yeah, sure, man. And we're like, you've got that high ass voice that like nobody can reach. You've got that freaking in the trees thing. I, you hit the high part. It's like, you know, and we're like, that's it, man. That's it. And so we just went down the studio one night in, in LA at, um, and just, um, partied hard. And we all went into the, into the, into the, um, into the main room and, uh, sang all the choruses on the, on, you can still rock in America. And, and Glenn, God bless him. is that high voice on there. And, and there you go. It's a piece of rock and roll history now. Yeah, it really is. And of course, uh, whoever has to do those high notes now probably hates the fact that you did that back then. But hey, what are you going to do? Uh, last thing here, quick, quickly. Uh, Kelly Keegi, of course, took a leave of absence last year for his heart. We saw him at M- M3. He looked great, sounded great. Everybody was great. Uh, was that a scare for you? And, and how is he doing now? I mean, he seemed perfectly fine in May, but how is he sort of holding up now? Well, Kelly's is doing great. I mean, it's like, you know, the first few shows when he came back, we have a paramedic next to us, you know, next to him on the stage the whole time. And, and afterwards, the guy would like take his heart rate and everything like that. And I said one night, Hey, take my heart rate. And Kelly's was like better than mine. I'm saying, what the, how can that be? And the guy says, Hey, he's got a new heart. He's got the heart of a baby. And I'm like, I'll be doggone. Nah, he's great. Kelly is back a hundred percent. I mean, singing his ass off, playing his ass off, you know, just, just everything. Thank, thank, thank the good Lord that everything went smooth and m- went great on his surgery. And um, I think we've all got many, many more years together. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, Jack, always, always a great pleasure. Uh, we've done this before. Looking forward to doing it again. And hopefully we will see you soon. Um, maybe you'll be at M3 again. Who knows? Thank you, sir. There you go. My pleasure. And say hi to Alice for me. Give him my regards and tell him, Tell them we're all going out to lunch or dinner um, sometime the beginning of uh, December anyway. I'll be in Phoenix. There you go. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I will tell them that. Thank yeah. you, sir. Cheers. Bye-bye. Later. I, along with Westwood One, would love to learn more about you. If you have a minute, 
to spare, we would really appreciate if you could head over to www.podsurvey.com. That is www.podsurvey.com to fill out a short survey telling us who you are and what you like to do. This information will be used to help us create better content for the show and to find advertisers that you want to hear from. Again, thanks, and if you have time, head over to www.podsurvey.com. That is www.podsurvey.com to complete the survey and help us learn more about you, our cherished listeners. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. 